Sometime in the last few years, people started talking about the energy transition and the green economy as an opportunity. In that sure, climate change and the severe weather events it creates are going to cause disasters that will end up costing Canadians a lot of money. But there's also going to be a necessity to invest in new infrastructure, new energy sources, and that's going to create opportunities for economic growth. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to John McNally, the Program Director for Clean Growth at Place Center, which is a research initiative at the Smart Prosperity Institute that tries to make policy recommendations for communities based on the way people experience challenges. McNally recently helped author a report about Canada's readiness for the energy transition and the green economy. Some of the biggest obstacles to taking advantage of the green economic opportunities, he found, aren't necessarily related to building new infrastructure, but really come down to people. We need more people and things like affordable housing. And it's a reminder of the fact that the small things add up. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. John, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me today. Thanks, Gabe. Really appreciate you having me out. One of the things I was really struck by in reading your report is that the high cost of housing, of all things, is one of the biggest obstacles to creating a successful green economy. Can you talk to me about how housing connects to the green economy? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, and that's actually a really good point that you've noted. The big piece that I think to come back to, just to start off with your key point there, is as we start to think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that are going into all of these clean economy projects across the country. There tends to be a lot of focus placed on the policies that we create, the, the investment capital that's needed to really drive into these projects. And what doesn't often get as much consideration, but is starting to as of late, is the fact that all of these projects will need to be built by people, right? ChatGPT is great, but it's not at the point yet where it can complete full construction on buildings or solar panel projects. And as part of that, what we need to start to consider is whether or not Canada has the skilled workers needed to be able to actually build and advance these projects in all of the regions across the country where they'll be needed. But we also need to think about whether or not those workers have the skills um, that they need to build these projects. In a number of different areas, the technologies that we talk about differ from uh, an existing technology. The example I always come back to is we're talking about the if we're talking about the future of Ontario's automotive sector, we're moving from internal combustion engine engine vehicle manufacturing into zero emissions vehicle manufacturing and battery manufacturing. There are changes to skills that are needed to manufacture this different end use technology. And I'm happy to get into that, but I want to focus on the housing point you made, which is that at the end of the day, workers are still people. These are human beings, and human beings need somewhere to live. And like any of us making housing decisions, it's really important that we have places to live that are nearer to our work that are affordable within the salary range that's offered. And the challenge here that we have to navigate is that if we don't have affordable housing near the areas where we want these projects to get built, it's really difficult for workers to actually live in these communities. And if they can't live there, it's much harder for them to think about commuting to work to physically build these projects. And what we're seeing is that even if in a lot of clean economy projects, there are sort of higher than average wages in these sectors, housing affordability in Canada is still really potentially going to hold back our ability to uh, to fill these roles, which could go as far as leading to project delays and increases in costs and could go as far as making making our climate targets potentially seem unrealistic. Right. 
maybe this is an appropriate time to pause and ask you about the lens that you used to analyze this whole question, which seems to be a little bit different than what others used. And I think you've called it community-based, and that's why you gave grades to provinces on how ready they are. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what your research method was and how you approached this question in this report. Sure, happy to. So the disclaimer I like to start off with in this case is that I'm not an economist, which means that when we're thinking about labor and skills challenges, I don't tend to take a strictly economic perspective on this. As part of that, we've been trying to think through and unpack with the work we do at the Place Center the specific challenges that communities face in trying to grow their own clean economies. As part of this, what we recognize is that a lot of the responsibility for ensuring that regions have the skilled workforce they need to be able to build projects that may get federal support or provincial support or come from industry money falls upon the province and the municipality or the local industry to ensure that they have not only the people that are needed, but also the skills that they need within that workforce to be able to build these projects. And every province is starting to adjust to this reality that what they're being asked to do is actually quite challenging. We're ultimately trying to think about creating tens to what could even be hundreds of thousands of jobs in different provinces across the country. And they're having to adapt and adjust to this particular challenge at the same time as they're thinking through every other major trend whether it's a healthcare crisis, whether it's dealing with wildfires, as, as we saw earlier this year. And for us, it was important to unpack and acknowledge the reality that when workers come to Canada, they're ultimately looking to settle in a specific community. So the reason we opted to try and unpack and understand how ready each province was to support skilled workers is because ultimately, the workers that move here will live in these provinces and communities. Our primary experience on day-to-day policy interactions will come from interacting with the municipal governments or the provincial governments where we happen to live. And it's important that every province be ready to tackle these challenges, given that so many of the issues we're talking about, whether it be affordable housing or skills training, happen to be provincial jurisdiction. We felt it was also an important way for us to broaden the conversation beyond just talking about the number of jobs that get created when we act on climate which is great, right? As you can see from our report, that's also a really important part of what we want to do. But climate action has advanced so much in the last five years in Canada. We now have, you know, carbon price that's been defended in the Supreme Court. We have a net zero target. We have a number of these major foundational policies in place. And what we have to start seriously thinking about is not whether or not we should act on climate or whether or not it's a good thing, but how are we supposed to do this? We've moved into the realm of these very operational questions And that's where physically having the skills needed to build a number of these projects starts to come into play. And ultimately, we see that as being a challenge that is currently being borne by communities and provinces, which is why we chose to focus there. So you've been saying being ready like a people problem. And one of the obstacles cited in your report is severe labor shortages. For many people, recent headlines about labor shortages came out of the blue, or at least they feel relatively new in terms of showing up on many people's radar. Can you talk about the background to how this emerged as such an important problem? I like your characterization that they're they're relatively new in the public consciousness. And probably important to stress here is that a number of the challenges that have led to the existing labor shortages have been happening for years or for decades. Folks in the skilled trades have been talking about the fact that there's an aging workforce. There aren't as many young people filling apprenticeships. And that is one of the challenges that given you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years time, 
proves to become more and more challenging when we're trying to think about getting enough young people in to fill these existing jobs. COVID, I think, really brought this to the forefront for a lot of folks. We started to think a lot about whether or not we had the workers to fill specific roles. It started prompting a lot of conversations about the way we work, whether it's work from home or conversations about service jobs and and frontline workers. But in a number of the sectors that we anticipate being most affected by climate action, which include construction and manufacturing and transportation, what we're seeing is that there are really high rates of job vacancies currently. Uh, I think in, in certain sectors, you know, the combined, the construction and manufacturing labor shortage accounts to almost 170,000 workers across the country. And that stands in contrast with some of the job creation estimates and the, the level of activity that we know we will be needing from these sectors moving forward. Again, these major emissions-reducing projects, these projects that can help us capture these new clean growth opportunities, they need workers, and they're not going to grow themselves. So the challenge that we now have to navigate is that we know there's going to be additional demand for construction workers. We know there's going to be additional demand for manufacturing workers. And we have to reckon with trying to fill these positions while we're simultaneously trying to deal with labor shortages. And one piece that I just want to highlight here as well is that Canada's aging workforce actually makes this more challenging than it otherwise would be because we have an aging workforce in a number of different sectors, which means that we can actually expect to see higher rates of retirements. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Right. The report highlights the fact that we're going to see higher rates of retirement in the next 10 years, which is precisely when we want to capture this growth. And that's one of the reasons why our immigration levels are higher. But there are also questions about the best way to integrate newcomers to Canada. And I wonder what your views were on that issue, if there are specific things that need to be addressed that you found. One of the challenges we have as a country is that even if we did just hit 40 million, we are getting older on average. And one of the statistics that is in this report and that came out when we were writing is that 80% of Canada's workforce growth comes from immigration. We are very reliant on immigration in order to help grow our workforce and fill a number of these different labor shortages. For us, it was a big priority to try and think through, well, how well positioned are different regions, different provinces across the country and different cities to be able to attract the skilled workers that we know we will need to be able to fill these roles? And for us, what we found in our analysis was that some of the The three provinces that seem to score best within this were Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, in part because there are uh, really attractive career prospects in these areas. Wages tend to be a little bit higher, in part due to the cost of living. And they also have a large presence of family and friends for a number of different uh, communities who come to Canada and otherwise settle. We also know that immigrants tend to be drawn a little bit more to denser cities and urban centers on average. The challenge that these provinces have, and the reason this isn't a slam dunk, is because of that affordable housing challenge that we talked about, right? Those are three provinces that aren't exactly known for having the most affordable housing markets in the country. But outside of just being able to sort of attract, retain, and and frankly, support folks that work here, we also have to think about knocking down the barriers so that more folks can participate in our labor market. And when I say knock down the barriers, I'm referring to what what we would call barriers, but probably amount to obstacles or costs that get imposed on skilled workers when they want to enter the workforce and fill some of these existing roles. 
One of the biggest ones is that there are costs associated both monetary and with time taken to have credentials recognized if you are someone with foreign experience or a foreign degree who wants to bring that into the Canadian market. And those barriers often differ by province. Uh, They differ by occupation, especially if it's certain registered occupations. And there's different amounts of time and money that it can take uh, for each stage of the process. So one of the examples that um, we like to cite, because as part of this report, we conducted a bit of an analysis, is that the cost of just assessing your credentials can vary across provinces and territories pretty dramatically. It can be anywhere from $15 to you know $700. And that often doesn't include some of the other costs associated with licensing or assessment. If you're someone who just moved to this country, who spent a fair bit of their savings trying to get settled, who's gone through the whole immigration process, that's a big barrier if you have a skilled engineer who may have been educated and experienced in another country and now has to go through what can be a process that lasts over a year and costs thousands of dollars just to be able to fill an in-demand role in the country where they've chosen to move. I started to ask you a minute ago about could some of these immigration labor integration policy kinks be ironed out? You know, you mentioned that there is quite a bit of variety between the different provinces. Have any of the provinces made progress on ironing these out in recent years? Yeah, I mean, most provinces are fairly aware of the fact that they need to streamline their own immigration processes. This is the kind of thing that tends to come up a lot within these discussions. And one of the examples of positive innovation that we've seen in the last couple of years comes from some of the changes that have been developed to provincial nominee programs. So provincial nominee programs are these provincially administered immigration programs where folks basically apply to a specific province, they then go through the process and it's paired with some settlement and integration services, but it also allows companies to work with provincial governments to help understand the skills profile of folks who have come in through this specific program. There have been some really positive examples of tweaks or changes made to these programs to help make them friendlier for businesses, but also to help improve the the user friendliness and the experience of immigrating to a new place for newcomers to Canada. Manitoba's provincial nominee program stands out as a strong example here. We were actually just at Winnipeg talking to folks about a month ago about this, where they've made efforts and taken steps to design a program that taps more into the community aspect, recognizing that it's not just about physically being able to get someone into a specific community, but it's also about that community having the supports needed so that when folks show up, they can be at their best. You know, does the community have affordable housing? Does it have transport infrastructure? Does it have members of the original community that they were in so that folks speak the language and there's an awareness of cultural norms when they move to a completely new place, which can often be in rural Manitoba? Um, And that's not a shot at rural Manitoba, but it looks quite different than if you're moving from, you know, Manila in the Philippines. There's a contrast there. And outside of that, there's also some new programs that have been developed the Atlantic Immigration Program, the IAP, and it might be the Atlantic Immigration Pilot. I apologize if I've gotten that wrong. That was launched later last decade in around 2017. And the goal was to help attract new immigrants and more immigrants into a number of the different Atlantic provinces. And so far, it's brought in about 10,000 new workers, many of whom are skilled. Now, these programs are useful because you can target them and adjust their requirements to help draw in skilled workers for specific industries in in, in these communities and in these regions like manufacturing. But they still need to consider the experience that people have when they actually move there and how easy it is for them to get a new job, settle down in this community and and start to develop a a new life. 
I imagine that if some provinces learn how to do this properly, then others may follow their lead and emulate the model they create. That seems like something that will happen if there's political will. But since we're talking about readiness for the green economy and the energy transition and maximizing our economic benefits, I wonder if there are organizationally complex problems that may end up being more difficult to solve. Like, for example, if we want to convert all our buildings from natural gas furnaces to heat pumps, that might be something that would require reskilling labor so that you need an electricity source, which could involve building transmission lines. Then there may be changes to the way natural gas costs are structured for consumers that would disincentivize making the switch. Like that struck me as a different type of problem than what you're describing. Is there a way that you characterize or prioritize these problems? One of the main themes that I tend to come back to in any green jobs discussion is that people can only have jobs working on projects that actually exist. So the the point you raised about, you know, natural gas uh, conversions within buildings, if you're switching over to heat pumps, it's a really good example of the kind of project where we do need to start thinking readily about the skills needs that are required for this. And when we talk to folks in the construction sector, what they say pretty adamantly is part of what's missing here is clarity around the level of projects that will need it, certainty around how far we can plan in advance. And frankly, there's a need for governments and uh, oftentimes industry as well to clarify what kinds of technologies they want to use. In that case, the goal of public policy is then to make sure that folks who happen to be skilled workers, whether they be electricians who work on these buildings or construction managers or even architects and designers, it's up to them to try and figure out what specific skills needs they have to get them from point A, which is basically your your current skills profile, to point B. Now, a lot of what we have uncovered as part of our research on a number of different opportunities across the country is that the skills gap is actually the kind of thing that can be plugged within about six months at the most. There's a lot of different challenges that we realize can actually be solved with upskilling or just small additional amounts of training with some positions and and some challenges. You can upskill someone in in about a week or in two weeks for a lot of these gaps. The big challenge becomes that you need the projects lined up. You need to have a really detailed understanding as to what project A does versus project B. And then those companies and governments need to make sure they're aligned with colleges, universities, labor unions, employment service providers, and other training groups to ensure they create the training programs that are actually needed to plug these gaps. Now, all of that, like I said, it's very manageable, but it does take time to get it right. And part of the challenge that we outline in this report is that when we're thinking getting out to 2030, you know, there are some estimates here that show Canada could create, you know, 300,000 new jobs, which is fantastic news. But it's also something we have to take pretty seriously, given that a successful skills training program quite often will put through, you know, 50 to 100 people over the course of a year. We need to start to think about really bolstering the kinds of programs we have and really developing these at scale. Or we risk not being able to build some of these new projects and it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg problem. It's a fascinating report, John. I just want to thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk with me today and share your insight on this topic. I really appreciate you having me out, Gabe. That was John McNally, Program Director for Clean Growth at Place Center, which is a research initiative at the Smart Prosperity Institute. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music, designed the logo, and executive produced this show. Victoria Wells, Pamela Heaven, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. 
I'm Gabe Friedman and Down to Business will be posting more episodes, but until then, you can find your business news at financialpost.com.